0: Alright, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two... You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari
1: J. Let's start the show.
0: Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening... What we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective.
1: I I hope that you picked your word choice and your grammatical presentation properly in that intro, Tari J, because you know that uh, even the merest faux pas... Is unacceptable and would have to be corrected.
0: Yes, I am aware, and so I have chosen all of my words very specifically.
1: Oh shit! Oh, you yeah. done? You done? Did it now? You you pronounced a word in a fashion that is is not uh, the societally agreed upon pronunciation of that word, and I don't like it. So I'm going to hide in your closet with scissors uh, until you find me. Uh, I will spend all week in there. If I have to, we're, we're in, we're all in quarantine. So like, I don't know how often you're changing your clothes. I might be in there for a month, but I will, I will be in there with scissors waiting to smile and, and scissor stab you uh, for your faux pas uh, at the end of this.
0: Scissor stab sounds like a sex act. (laughs) Um, and I don't want it. I Uh, I feel
1: though, if it sounds like a sex act, I feel like it is perfectly, um, in line then with the sensibility of the filmmaker whose work we are here today to discuss
0: that's true uh today we're talking about serial mom by john waters he wrote it produced it directed it it has an like, all-star cast like kathleen turner sam waterston ricky lake this is Pre talk show ricky lake uh suzanne somers makes a little appearance it has uh sh- shaggy from scooby-doo matthew lillard um and it has like everyone's super duper uh dream guy who played scott whose last n- uh, whose name oh, i forget uh but uh, he's Justin in Wayland. it yeah yeah uh so uh Lex, you brought this to me. I did. Um, so uh, I know it's part of our Mother May I themed month. So uh, give us a little pitch. Tell us what its deal is.
1: All right. So uh, fr- uh, here we go. Ready? Here's here's my pitch uh, to you. Uh, so from a noted and beloved master of filth and sleaze, John Waters, comes a story about a Leave it to Beaver-esque uh, nuclear family. But the mother, though she loves her children, though she is the happiest homemaker you could ever think to meet, though she she sure does make a mean fruit salad, takes an interest in her kids' academic performance, a member of the community. She also has a couple of uh, less than savory impulses, and she has very high standards that she holds folks to. And when those standards aren't met, she well, she she goes a little she goes a little sideways. She has to address these things. But what fine, upstanding member of their community wouldn't want to seek to correct people's behavior for the better? Uh, and it's about uh, one woman's struggle to better her community, and her family's struggle to come to terms with the means by which she chooses to do that. Also, a lot of overlap thematically with our discussion last week about Scream 2 in that this is also a movie that deals very heavily with the relationship between violence and the media, both uh, as uh, Mickey put it in Scream 2, uh, life imitating art, but also art imitating life uh, as well. It's uh, especially for a John Waters movie. Yes, very. Uh, there's a lot of filth, a lot of trash, a lot of sleaze, but also I think a pretty accessible movie as well. Uh, I think this movie's a ton of fun. So uh, Tara, this is your first time, I believe. So I'm very, uh, very excited to hear your take on Serial Mom.
0: You know, what's interesting is I thought this was my first time seeing it, but I think I've seen either parts of it or I saw it when I was so young that I only remember the trial bit. Um, so I only remember the third act, um, specifically – uh this movie was where I learned the idea of you don't wear white after Labor Day. Uh-huh. Um and I and in my brain uh whenever someone would talk about the moment from uh Basic Instinct where the lady like crosses her legs and shows her yep. vagina, I think I was always picturing this uh, the scene from this movie where Kathleen Turner is opening and closing her legs. Um yeah. So I have vague recollections of this movie, and I don't think I understood anything about it when I saw it. So now it's like I'm seeing it for the first time, um, but with little echoes of deja vu. Uh, and I don't think I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> like there were, I think I, I really enjoyed Kathleen Turner and her portrayal of the character. I liked some of the wacky murders. Um, I think the pacing of the movie is really odd. It is. Um, it's, really,
1: it's really strangely structured.
0: Yeah. And I think that, like, I, I think I get that it's a satire or, like, a take on an idea, um, but it's not really like, I don't, I don't, I guess for me personally, I don't feel like it was really like nailed in there. I think it was just like, yeah, look at all this stuff. Oh boy. Look at how, how crazy wacky this mom is. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> well, it's, um,
1: it's funny cause I, I do agree with you for the most part. I think like, and, and John Waters has talked about this movie as satire and I it's it, there are elements of it there there there's um a satirical angle on say you know the leave it to beaver le, the leave it to beaver style uh nuclear suburban family I suppose but really as far as um pointed satire you really don't get to any of that till you get to the the trials sort or of the last stretch of the movie and even then I'm not sure that I would have been thinking about it. All that specifically, if we hadn't just had a discussion on this show about Scream 2, which dealt more pointedly uh, and for more of the runtime with some of the same ideas that I think John Waters is playing with in the last act of this movie.
0: Right. And this uh, movie came out in 1994, which I believe they wrapped up principal photography just as like the OJ stuff was starting. Um, so there's, there's no sep or there's no like, I guess, influence from that, but you can, you can feel it being somewhat predictory of like how sensational murder trials have had would become in that period. So that's cool. So, I mean, I think that like, it has a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And I think a lot of the performances are really well done. I think that, like, just the 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 movie overall probably just didn't hit me in the right way. Um, but there's a lot to kind of dig through inside of it.
1: Uh, and I do think, you know, for a John Waters movie, I do think this is fairly accessible, uh, despite being about uh, a series of real gnarly, gory murders and stuff. Like, there's definitely... You know, you, you get a taste of his uh, trademark sleaze and trademark filth that he is so beloved and celebrated for, and that he runs head head on towards with open arms and stuff and embraces fully and wants to share with all of us this weird smut and sleaze and filth. Um, there's there are hints of that, there are shades of it, but nothing uh, nothing on the level of say I want to say it's in um, is it Pink Flamingos where Divine actually eats poop. Um, nothing uh, quite of that ilk in this movie. St- very sort of off-color, certainly, but not quite as uh, inaccessibly gross as that. I feel like maybe the closest we get to that is what she uh, snots on a baby at one point. That's right. pretty gross. That's that's unsavory.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, you're kind of digging into what I was going to ask about next, which is... Um, this is my first John Waters movie. Okay. Uh, and so with the exception of I've seen parts of uh, Hairspray, the like later one, not the one the he did in the order. 80s. Um, oh, no, okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I'm i unfamiliar with this idea that he is a depraved, sleazy person slash creator, can you give me a little uh a little background on that?
1: Uh I mean so I'm not uh I wouldn't call myself a John Waters expert necessarily, but I know that he was always as a creative he was always drawn towards uh things that he felt were forbidden. Um and so his his influences were this sort of combination of art cinema, but also really sleazy exploitation stuff. And so throughout his career, he just found ways to take all of his influences and regurgitate them in a way that felt to him, I think uh, maybe a little bit dangerous, a little bit like, Oh, we're not really supposed to be watching this. Um, And so just, he, he would create these incredibly heightened, uh, really sort of ugly scenarios with these sort of like belligerently off color characters. And like divine was one of his biggest, um, collaborators. And I feel like divine was sort of the perfect avatar for that sensibility of his, but also interestingly, uh, he found a way in a number of his works to balance that, to juxtapose it with sort of sunny, uh, you know, leave it to beaver is the most obvious point of comparison, but that's sort of pure, 50 suburban sensibility. Um, and you see it obviously in Serial Mom, but you also see it in, say, Hairspray. And it's uh, sort of interesting to me that Hairspr- like, the, the, Hairspray came from the mind uh, that also produced, say, Pink Flamingos, or Cecil B. Demented, for example, or A Dirty Shame. But Hairspray is also the basis for one of the most sort of joyful, upbeat, Broadway musicals of the past, what, 20 years or so. So it's interesting that all of these elements sort of born of the same guy's mind. And so you can definitely trace all of these different shades that color his output back to what his original uh, inspiration points were. But he has sort of become the figure, the sort of cult icon of art representative of just be a total freak and it's cool and it's fine and it's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to upset people. It's definitely never, ever, ever going to be for everybody. But you know what? Fuck it. You beautiful, beautiful weirdo. You just go do you. Um, And I think that's part of why, even though a lot of his work is designed to alienate certain sections of the audience, um, there's something, he, he embraces the weird. You know what I mean? And like, I think he makes his audience feel a little bit better about being weird themselves, about embracing the different, about isn't life more interesting when shit's a little bit fucked up and so on. Okay. And so I think I think, yeah, like hairspray is pretty accessible in terms of his work. And I think, yeah, Serial Mom is is one of the more like if I was going to introduce somebody to John Waters and I was reasonably certain that they were not prepared for like divine eating poop or like Johnny Knoxville flying up into the sky and ejac- ejaculating like geysers from his head, um, then I would probably start them with either hairspray or Serial Mom because you, you get the taste of it, but you don't get a, a whole mouthful. Um,
0: i see what uh what film is the johnny knoxville one
1: uh it's a dirty shame
0: okay which is Um, which is uh,
1: very explicitly about uh all manner of sexual perversions
0: got it okay um i feel like we can't really go too much further without spoiling things so uh it's about time that we start putting down that spoiler wall it's it's slowly lowering like a like a drawbridge heading into a a castle so it's it's slowly slowly being put up and so while that's happening and while you're reaching for your dial on your i don't know phone or your ipad or your computer or your car um i'd like to remind you that um Something that helps us out is going to iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. That helps us get to the top of the charts, helps other people find us. As you know, the most potent form of marketing is word of mouth. Uh, and also, if you guys interact with us in a different manner, uh, we try to also give you guys shout outs here and there. Um These episodes also syndicate to YouTube and we don't do a lot of YouTube, uh, comment reading, but I really liked this one that we got from a user named music, uh, on our scream Two episode that just says, um, here before 10 subscribers, wish this was longer. Also want to be friends. Uh, so I, I liked that. So I thought I'd read that here on the show. Uh thank you, music. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh checking out our content. Uh we're already friends. Just follow us on on Twitter or Instagram, but probably Twitter because we don't use our Instagram. Um
1: one, so, one yeah. day we will. That's what we're living for. We need to get to the other side of this uh pandemic so that we can start using our Instagram. That's that's the goal now. That's that's why we hang on. That's what we have to fight for.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, that's that's the real infinity saga.
0: Totally. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally. Uh so just like Infinity War, you're going to have to wait for the next part until after this. And we are back. And you know what time it is. Now that was the now that the spoiler wall is down, it's time to sh- sh- bust
1: a recap. <laughs> See, as much as I like watching movies, I like even more when Tari J describes them to me in detail. So Tari J, what is what what's the deal with Serial Mom? What happens in this thing?
0: Ah oh, man, so much happens in this movie. Uh, I feel like I just got to hit the broad strokes because there's so many like little bitty details that I could I could just talk about all day. Uh, but if you're just coming into Serial Mom and you're like I watched it so long ago, I was probably like 8 years old, don't remember what happened, here's your refresher. Alright? So we have the uh, Stuffins, stuffins? Uh, I can't pronounce sutfin. <laughs> sutfin We have the Sutfins um, and it's a mom a dad, two kids I'm sure that they also have a dog, a white picket fence they're the the archetype for the nuclear family. However, the mommy has a secret. That mommy likes to do prank calls. She likes to (laughs) make Dottie feel like shit. Uh, And so uh, these two detectives come by and are like, Hey, uh," she's been getting letters with, with profanities on them and prank calls. Like you guys know anything about this? And they show it to the mom, and she's like, oh, oh, oh this do- offends my sensibilities. It's the P word. Ooh, <laughs> that's the non-clinical term for a female's vagina. Uh, and the detectives are like, all right, all right, she seems fine, or whatever. And then the younger detective is like, I'm going to fuck your daughter. Uh, and. They're like, okay, okay, goodbye, good, goodbye, <laughs> detectives, please go away. Uh, and now we just kind of hang out with the mom who uh, gives us, you know, context why she's prank calling this woman, and it's because she sharked a, a fucking parking place for from her, which I get. I have also had a, a parking space shark for me and been like, you know what, I'm going to make your life miserable. Um, But I'm gutless, so I never did it. But she had the balls to follow through, which I respect. Um But from this point on, we really start to get a descent into uh serial killer madness. You start to find out that the mom also has been reading a bunch of stuff about serial killer stuff. She has a little shrine. She keeps a binder about different serial killers. She has tapes from... Ted Bundy, like she's all in on that super duper serial killer fandom. Uh, if 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 serial killers were Star Wars, she'd be at Disney every week, bruh. And so, um, then any little thing that bothers her, she decides it is the proper response. To murder that person because she's ridding society of those who don't conform to the rules of society. So, this woman, she doesn't recycle, so she's gonna pin all her murders on that woman. Uh this uh who else is she? Oh, uh Carl, who is too old for her daughter. He <laughs> uh cheats on her. He's like, we're just friends, and then takes Tracy Lords to the SWAT meet in front of her daughter's face, showing off this girl. So it's like, yo, this dude got to go. And he gets his liver poked out from a fire poker, which is gross, uh, but also kind of cool. And then she also kills, um, ooh, she kills a couple of her, uh, her husband's clients. They're both really pissy and mean. And really shitty. So you get it. You know. So they're trying to steal the husband away from bird watching time. So they got to go. And then Scotty sees her. So he's got to go. And then. Uh, who was it? There was a lady who got murdered for just. Uh, I don't even remember why she got murdered. But she got murdered with a lamb leg. Which I thought was a really fun additional piece. So, um, but she deserved it only, and this is my opinion, for having her dog lick her feet, which I hated. (laughs) I hated it so much that I was like, she also's got to go. And she does. She (laughs) leaves. She is fucking dead. And I like that. Um, But ultimately, then this all culminates in uh, the detectives bringing Bev in, mostly because Bev played by Kathleen Turner does a great job, but, um, she has no respect for covering her tracks. And so her her fingerprints are everywhere. She doesn't do anything to prevent the police from finding her. She's just real brazen about it. Um, I assume because she's like sociopathic, so she doesn't even really like view herself as doing anything wrong. Uh, which you find out by the end of the movie where she's defending herself, uh, on trial and she's like i'm not guilty and she essentially manipulates everyone into believing she's not guilty and she um uh manipulates the witnesses and gets them held under contempt or uh you know utilizes their perviness or tries to make everyone feel like it was uh, uh, it was her friend who doesn't recycle so uh at the end she gets she gets off bro and not in the sex way which she does earlier but like in the court way which means she can go free but she can't let it go that this one juror will not stop wearing white after labor day which i'm told according to the internet was a really old fashion faux pas uh and they say in the movie that fashion has changed as of 1994 so I imagine like it wasn't even a thing. So that girl did not deserve to go. And I don't agree with that murder. Um, But ultimately, she never seems to really face consequences. Um, But, you know, the bigger picture is that everyone who knew her is is essentially profiting off of her murders and the uh, trial of whether she did it or not. And that's the bigger picture, isn't it? Aren't we all profiting off of someone's murders?
1: <laughs> I dig it. That is yeah. essentially what the movie is about. So I all right, I want to take I want to take this in a couple of pieces because you said overall uh this movie didn't really work for you and I'm totally with you as far as structurally it's a bit all over the place, for sure. There is a lot about this movie that I really love. Now, most of it is in that sort of last wave. It's where they're talking about uh, the trial and how everybody responds to the reality of that circumstance and what John Waters is sort of trying to say about us as a, as a culture and as a society. But this movie is also full of little moments and ideas that I'm a huge fan of. And this is like very, very early on, um, even just the glee with which Beverly is making these dirty prank calls. Like, in a lot of other stories, I feel like it would either be about uh, Beverly's gradual descent into madness and murder and or about her trying to keep it, say, hidden from her family and how, you know, they maybe deal with the fallout of this horrible news in a way that like completely shatters them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, of course, not. Not that movie at all, and in fact, when we begin, she's sort of been creating mischief for a while. Um we see her first her first on screen kill, I believe is the teacher, but we don't we don't know for sure um that she's never dabbled in violence before in fact, i would I would argue. Uh, usually when murders, especially serial killers, are committing a string of murders, like they graduate to it, right? So she's probably been, I don't know, uh, probably not killing dogs because we see that she's super friendly to the one dog in this movie, even as she uh, bludgeons its owner to death with meat. Um, right. But she's probably been dabbling for a while, but I just like what a kick she gets out of driving this, this poor woman uh, to using foul language and stuff like that. Um, and I love what it says about the world that they are inhabiting, because it's a very uh, upper class, but like elitist upper class, white suburban existence. And that's sort of the baseline that you're working off of. And that's sort of the the root, the fulcrum, uh, if you will, of of the satire. Right. Because we talk about you were talking about how she never uh, faces any consequences whatsoever for her actions, despite being very clearly guilty of them and and barely working to cover her tracks at all. And you got to think, well, that probably wouldn't be the case if she wasn't a very well-off uh, white lady. Um, and and again, that sort of gets to one of the many things that I find fascinating about the last wave of this. But I want to, before we get to that, because I feel like to talk about the trial, um, which is sort of the biggest well of satire, I think, in the movie. And also, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how it ties into our discussion from last week about Scream 2. I want to know what I guess are the bigger things for you that either didn't necessarily work or even moments that maybe jumped out as stuff that actually did connect with you if you've got any of them sort of off the top of your head.
0: Um I think if I were to uh kind of list off a few of the things that didn't necessarily work for me, um I mean it's it's the top one is the pacing and i think that like the the so underneath that would probably be the weird tonal dissonance of the the movie itself like it it jumps from being really like mad camp to um being just like very not even like self-serious but just like it, it seems like it is just like a a straight up family film and it jumps uh, like, so for, give me, a, for, so for an example, um, we have this dinner scene where everyone suspects Bev of being the murderer. And so we have them talking uh, about uh, <laughs> that. We have them kind of like subtly hinting that they might suspect. And chip says that Scotty might, might suspect her. And so then it leads us to this really – um it leads us to this chase sequence where she is heading off and we think she's going to Scotty's. And then we go to uh the family who's chasing her. um, And then we have the cop who's also chasing her. And so it's like a bunch of different chases that are happening at once. And you're like, all right, cool. I get what's happening here. Um, And she's like, oh, man, look how cavalier I am. She turns up the radio and loses the cop's. Cool. Fine. Um, and then we get while this is happening, um, Scott, Scotty, I guess is his name, uh, you know, ramping up for a uh, a sweet, sweet masturbation sesh. Right. And you're like, OK, I guess this this is going to ha- lead to people finding him. Like I get that that's happening. Um, and so like that whole sequence, I feel like is one tone. Whereas, um, a lot of the, a lot of other parts of the movie are kind of just really, uh, I don't know, lower energy, just kind of like hanging out. So like, uh, an example of that being when we're in the, uh, in the swap meet and like, we know that we're gearing up for her to kill Carl, but before that happens, we're just kind of hanging out with people. We are at the swap meet. The uh, Rosemary is like, "Oh man, I can't. I need a Fabergé egg." And then she's like, "Oh man, I guess I'm gonna cheat this guy out of three dollars for this for this poker." Oh boy! And I'm like, "Get to the murder! Give me some more like madcap, like crazy goodness." Um, but it it like really peaks and valleys between um really insane out of this world stuff to like really almost too grounded uh moments and it's it it doesn't really flow well between those two things i think is my biggest issue um i mean i think conversely as i said like i really like all of the acting like i think that the the guy, the dad, who is uh, Sam Watterson, I think he, Sam Waterston he does a really good job of playing the um, kind of like the clueless dad character, just trying to keep everything together. Um, like, I, I like how old fashioned he feels, um, yeah. because that's what they're going for. And I think he does a really great job of doing that. And I like a lot of the little choices that Kathleen Turner does especially like in the second chase scene when she passes her family uh as she's chasing Scotty and she just like gives them a little kiss and a wave um cuz she's just having a good time i think those little things are really what make this movie work um i think also um a lot of just kind of like the side characters are really interesting like the the two garbage men who uh, are also hate rosemary because she doesn't recycle they love to drink and they're on her side they'll give her things uh to use in her in her trial and stuff like that like those two are are weird quirky characters well Um, they
1: seem like they're practically complicit like there's a version of this movie where this scene could very easily be at home where these two trash people are like her co-conspirators like every time she commits a murder they basically kind of run in grab the body chuck it into the back of a garbage truck and that's how she's able to keep her her spree of terror going and stuff like they're so on board with the idea of this woman being killed yeah and when Beverly in, in the least subtle way possible basically says well I guess I will kill this person on your behalf they just very silently just shoot their drinks at the same time like they're 100 okay with the idea of this woman literally being murdered and they did in fact sort of suggest it it's like the comment box like they literally just put it took a little note anonymously dropped it in the comment box and are waiting for this lady to get murdered and I like these garbage people I want the spin-off about the garbage people
0: right well I mean uh especially nowadays like their concerns are very prominent they want to kill this lady because she doesn't care about the longevity of this earth uh and so like you get it i understand um but also like they specifically facilitated the one big problematic section of this movie which was the um they, it's implied that they went through the detective's trash and gave uh, Bev the. I'm I'm, I'm making quotes because this is all right. The the <laughs> transsexual themed magazine um, yes. to expose his quote unquote depravities or whatever. Um, like they specifically um, facilitated that moment just to devalue that uh, detective. So like up until that moment, they were cool with me. And then uh, they kind of messed it up. They messed yeah, it up it's
1: pretty. I mean, ultimately Beverly's point is that you shouldn't judge him based on his choice of reading material. But, but yes, there's a potentially quite a bit to unpack there. Um, I do like you, you referred to it as maybe like the one problematic section. And I feel like uh, for a John Waters movie, the fact that maybe only one leaps out to you in that way—that's uh, perhaps a rarity. Uh, normally, I mean, again, this is the dude who made the "Divine Eats Poop" movie. Um, so I feel like if if we can squeeze by with only one heavily problematic section, I feel like we're we're uh, we're beating the curve. Ah, oh,
0: that's good. Um, but yeah, and I think that like. In the small time that you get to know Mrs. Jensen, she's the one who refuses to rewind. Um, I think that her as a character, like you get her deal. Um, you get why uh, Bev wants to murder her. And they also just like keep building. on It's like in an improv scene where you endow someone with a specific feature, and then they just keep on hammering that and and building on it and being like, oh, nah, this person's the worst. Um, I think that she did a really good job of portraying that as well. So, like, everyone in this is doing what the kids would say the most, and I appreciate that.
1: Yes. Um, You talk about Mrs. Jensen. Um, So yes, she's the one that gets beaten to death with the leg of lamb. There are layers, I think, to what she did to quote unquote, deserve her fate. Now for you, the dog licking the feet was was enough. Uh, Understandably so. But uh, there's there's a list of things. She won't rewind the tape, which is just discourteous. Um, it's it, the notion, the very notion of thinking of someone other than herself is just more than her sensibilities can bear. But she also gets into it with Chip, uh, Beverly's son, played by Matthew Lillard. And and yes, she's going out of her way to punish uh, perceived faux pas of all sorts. But it seems like what really sticks in her craw more than anything else is when somebody uh, either speaks ill of or uh, sort of demeans or is rude to one of her children. So uh, when Mrs. Jensen sort of calls him a name, I think recalls him like son of a psycho, that's maybe the final straw. But something that would have played uh, very differently in 93 uh, than it does now that really does stick out is that she's returning ghost dad. And they make a point of having her stop and, and turn to Chip's friend and say, oh, I just love Bill Cosby movies. And now of course, given what we all know about uh, the gentleman in question, uh, and of course I'm applying the term gentleman very loosely in the loosest possible sense. In fact, um, it, it adds this other layer. So like, oh yes, this, this woman is just a variety of, of different kinds of, of ugly, ugly just sticks to this person. Um, right. And so, yes, in the, in, in a, puritanically moral universe as most horror movies uh, seem to be situated in. Yes, I feel like there's a list. There's a list of offenses that that Beverly may uh, see fit to punish and stuff.
0: Right. Um, I also because I, we have the time, I want to talk about this band The Camel Lips.
1: <laughs> okay. Let's talk about The Camel
0: Lips. Um, so now that I have the context that John Waters likes to just like do depravity. The this band makes more sense to me Um <laughs> in that like, I, I guess they are a real band, but their the real band name was the L was L seven, which makes a yes. square. You get it, it's losers. You know, you get it. It's it make, it's clever. Um But in this one, in this movie, they're a band known as Camel Lips, and their <laughs> pants have a uh, giant like camel toe uh, sewn into them so that as they are rocking you get to like imagine that they have big puffy labia um which i feel like is a real weird uh it's a real weird choice
1: uh nah the, the the rolling stones did it did they yeah totally Oh, okay. And, and the Beatles before them, the Beatles yes. did it on uh, when they did when they did Carson. That's why they took off like they did. People were like, "That is fucking bold." Like the music's fine, but what a fucking bold choice that is.
0: Um. Yeah, I I get it. I think the thing that also struck me about this band is that they saw a man on fire and proceeded to make him more on fire. <laughs> the I think it was the basis. <laughs> I mean, you know, after she, uh, you know, jammed him in the stomach for being on stage, he catches on fire and she's like, hey, guys, you want some more of this? And she spits alcohol on him, further increasing his burning to death.
1: (laughs) Yes. So, um couple of things about the moment you're, you're describing. So this was a movie that I also saw when I was younger and I must've seen it on, on HBO or Showtime Cinemax, one of the premium movie channels. So nothing was cut. Um, and this was one of the moments that really, uh, made an impression on me when I was, uh, young, younger than 10, whenever, whenever I saw this, um, For sure, the him sort of being on fire and pleading for help and the singer just blowing the the liquor on him and making him uh, flame harder. So I thought it was interesting watching this movie the week after we talked about Scream 2. And a lot of sequences sort of took a new shape for me uh, as I was watching it this time, including this scene. There's a lot of thematic overlap, um, especially in terms of what this movie seeks to satirize uh, with Scream 2 in particular. Uh, And this scene is very, very much like the opening scene of Scream 2, where you have Jada Pinkett being murdered in front of a large group of people who are there for like a rowdy entertainment event. And as this horrible murder is taking place right in front of them, they are so primed for aggression. They are so primed for, if not literal violence, then certainly the idea of violence, that as this thing, this awful murder is taking place right in front of them, they are just cheering for more as if it's part of the show, as if, yes, this is what we are here to see. And it's it's something that uh, Waters then follows through on in the third act of the movie where you see how people start to respond to the trial.
0: Mm-hmm. Again,
1: like we'll talk about that in a minute. A lot of overlap with Scream 2 in that last uh, section of the movie. But I thought that that was a really... Uh, it's an interesting and deeply upsetting scene for a number of reasons. One, it's upsetting to see Justin Whalen uh, get set on fire and die uh, while he screams for help. And not only does nobody help him, uh, they make it worse, but it's also, it's, it's interesting to take a look at that scene and consider what is being said about us and the way that we seek entertainment, the kinds of entertainment that we seek and raises the question without without definitively answering that question, without picking a side, sort of raises the question of how much, uh, to what degree should we hold the media responsible for our relationship with real life violence? And I do think John Waters sort of has it both ways insofar as like we know Chip is uh He's is a good student. He participates in class discussions, uh, but he's constantly drawing these weird sort of depraved, violent cartoons. But ultimately, even though he does seek to profit off of carnage towards the end of this movie, generally speaking, a fairly well-adjusted person, it's not like the sort of violent media that he consumes is driving him towards genuine violence. Whereas his mother, Beverly, there's that scene where she asks Chip, like after his friends go home, oh, can you put the scene back on where uh, this dude rips out some lady's heart? and she watches it and she's super duper into it and then she in turn does go and commit acts of violence including stabbing uh the one dude's organs out with the fire poker and also that's a bit of business from Kathleen Turner that I really love which is where she she impales him pulls his organ out like I don't know if that's supposed to be his liver or a kidney or just some some person meat mm-hmm. and then very daintily tries to get it off of the end of the the poker like she's she's totally down to commit this act of savage violence but also now that now that that's done you know you can't can't break decorum you don't want to get the viscera on your on your dress like how will you it's not even because you'll get caught you just won't look presentable uh, in the way that society dictates you must and stuff um but yeah that that whole scene is is all kinds of upsetting. It's all kinds of (laughs) upsetting.
0: I agree. Um, I think we should now start talking about the trial. Um, So this, as you were saying, is the moment when we get a lot of our satire and and we see how uh, the people in Bev's life, with the exception of her husband, who's just kind of like trying to figure out what to do. Um, everyone else is finding a way to really profit off of this and, and better themselves using the fact that their mom is now infamous. So you have uh, Matthew Lillard's chip. Uh, he's basically got an agent and he's f- like trying to find places that will do interviews. Like you even get that moment between um, – uh, what is the guy? Oh, Carl's brother where he hits him and – chips like that's cool that's cool but do you want to do an interview and the guy's like I already have <laughs> I already have two agents but like i need to do some cool like video stuff and he's like i got you my dude uh and you see that uh Misty uh, is essentially selling merchandise for her mom and like the cereal mom brand um, she's also getting it in with some photographer. They're doing so much sex, probably. <laughs>
1: but you also you also see that Serial Mom sort of becomes this aspirational thing. Um, she becomes, in a way, a bit of a f- sort of feminist media hero. And so uh, uh, this is the biggest point of overlap for me with with the thematics and the satirical bent of Scream 2, which is uh we're, we're, we spoiled the crap out of out of Scream 2 last week. Uh, but if you missed it, Beverly in the third act of this movie is sort of like if the killers in Scream 2 were victorious, but also if Mickey and Mrs. Loomis were one character, essentially like this is like Beverly gets to essentially live what Mickey's dream was, right. but gets to do it with the sort of the the veneer of niceness of uh, having a place in well-off society that Mrs. Loomis would bring to it as well. Um, and it's, it's sort of interesting. It's really interesting for me to watch these two movies back to back because this really does play almost like the alt-universe version of the ending of that movie, except that, yeah, in this case, uh, yes, they're one person, but also sort of like the, the Mickey figure gets everything uh that that he ever could have wanted and more like beverly really does become a celebrity um even when at the very end of the movie uh she sort of celebrates her win by killing the juror over the fashion faux pas and suzanne summers playing herself sort of keys into the reality that that oh maybe it's real uh you kind of get the impression that it's not gonna matter. You know what I mean? Like the serial mom movement is sort of bigger than she is now, even if they put her back in jail, like she's probably going to figure out a way to to do all right for herself. And now, because, because the media has found a way to sort of propagate this and turn it into money, like her family is going to continue to be fine. You know what I mean? Like serial mom th- is basically a, a brand now in this world. Like she she's sort of, she's ultimately victorious. And then on top of that, she's so great at gaslighting the hell out of everybody. Like, like you were talking about earlier, she effectively working as her own counsel, just systematically discredits every single person that is there to testify against her. And like you, much of this, uh, much of this business is what I remembered most from seeing this movie years and years and years ago. Um, Her goading uh, this, the poor lady she prank called into swearing in front of the court enough times to be held in contempt. Mm -hmm. The stuff about like her sort of baiting the pervert guy by spreading her legs open and closed and sort of making her skirt flop up and down and stuff like that made an, I maybe was like nine when I saw this. And yeah, that that type of thing definitely makes an impression. Right. But um, but yes, how, how effectively she plays, everybody plays on their sensibilities, plays on their sympathies. And then yeah, the way she and her entire family game, the media, this is also around, you know, like true crime had obviously been a thing in media before this, but it was becoming a phenomenon in a way that hadn't really existed before. And it wasn't too long after this, right, that that like the OJ trial happened. And it's sort of like, you know, reality really sort of bore John Waters out on pretty much everything that he was playing with, um, especially in the third act of this movie. Uh, also, I wanted to real quick talk about the uh, the juror that she kills at the end. So this was probably where I first heard about the wearing white after Labor Day thing uh, as well. Yeah. and. So do you know, like, apparently, and I I had forgotten what the deal was, like, I knew it was a thing, but I'd forgotten what what the whole thing was about until after I uh, rewatched this movie, decided to go look it up. And apparently, all it is, uh, is that uh, uh, white was sort of considered vacation clothing, like summer vacation clothing for the sort of wealthy elite who could afford to. Uh, vacation for months at a time uh, on their additional properties and stuff like that. And so uh, when vacation season is over, you are not supposed to dress in a manner that denotes uh, leisure all the time. Uh, So it was considered a big fashion faux pas, but it was basically a totally arbitrary rule. This is my understanding, a totally arbitrary rule essentially uh, designed to weed out have-nots from the haves, because if you're a have, you'll know this rule. It's like, if you know not to wear white after Labor Day, well, then you you know the club rules. So maybe you belong at this table. But if you are uh, fashion ignorant enough, then clearly you're not one of us if you're wearing white after Labor Day and stuff like that. And then like the elitists do, they they create uh, a completely arbitrary made-up rule and then demand that everybody else follow that that rule. Right. But also- uh, this juror, if I'm not very much mistaken, this is the juror that's played by uh, Patricia Hearst. Yes, and Patricia Hearst is that Patty Hearst of the famous uh, Patty Hearst kidnapping. Mm-hmm. The uh, I believe she's the granddaughter. Is she the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst? Uh, the yes, the, the ultra famous sort of uh, uh, yellow journalism uh, media magnet who is also the the basis for the Charles Foster Kane character in Citizen Kane. Um, this is obviously not a not a podcast about that real historical event, but it's a fascinating fascinating story and I, I highly encourage uh, whoever might be interested to go look up the story of the Hearst kidnapping because it is fascinating. Um, and yeah, and after that, uh, when when her life started to get back to something recognizable as normal, yeah, she did uh, she did a few movies. Yeah, Good for her,
0: which is pretty cool. Um, I mean, and I think the irony of it being that I believe her trial was also very heavily publicized and and very like uh, news media covered. So I, I assume that that was like a nice little wink. Or a nod uh, to that, uh, but do you have any last thoughts about this movie before we start to wrap up?
1: Uh, I'm glad I found an excuse to revisit it. I hadn't recalled um, until rewatching it how, how how many of these things, uh, many of these scenes, many of the lines of dialogue were sort of hardwired into a very deep part of my brain, like from when I was nine years old and didn't know how to process any of this shit. I think um, Kathleen Turner is brilliant in this movie. And she was she was the, the name. She was the get for John Waters. It was her signing on that actually got the movie greenlit in the first place. And I feel like this is just such a dream part for her. Like Kathleen Turner feels like as an actress, she's genetically engineered to play a character just like this big smile, white picket fence, happy homemaker, but also on a dime can turn and be real dark and real sinister without breaking the big smile. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think, I think the rest of the cast is great. I think it does have a lot on its mind as far as media, our relationship with media, our relationship with violence, how we sort of glorify and make celebrities out of people who commit these monstrous acts. Um, um, And I like, see, I sort of like the tone and I think some of the stuff that I like is some of the same stuff that that sort of turns you off about it because I agree there is a lot going on tonally in this thing and, and a lot of the elements seem as though they're a bit at odds with each other. But for me, I feel like, it feels like water's taking these disparate tones, putting them in a blender and creating a new sort of, like a muddy juice out of these disparate parts. And to me, it ends up feeling like one tone. It's, it's a multifaceted tone, I guess you could say, but it ends up feeling like one tone and, and knowing John Waters and knowing kind of the types of movies he makes. I I feel pretty comfortable looking at this movie going, yeah, this is all on purpose, like for better or, or, or worse, your mileage may vary. Of course, to me, it's like, oh, this is clearly all on purpose. And I love, uh, I think one of my favorite things about John Waters, maybe my favorite thing about John Waters is that that's his whole deal, whether it's leaning a little bit more in the direction of being wholesome and relatable, or it's leaning aggressively in the direction of being really gross and sleazy and alienating. He's very much just like, look, like this is what fascinates me. This is what I find interesting. This is what I find uh, in a way sort of relatable, either intellectually or emotionally or maybe from my lived experience, although given a lot of the content in his movies, hopefully not from his own lived experience, but he just sort of puts it right out there. And it's like, look, take it or leave it. This is a pure expression of my psyche. This is just what's going on in my brain. And here it is. Uh, if you like it, great. If you don't go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. And we don't, because we don't get, I feel like we get less and less of that all the time. And I love that, uh, You know, even if John Waters isn't making movies as frequently as he used to, I love that the dude is still out there reminding us that it's as long as you're not actually hurting people, it's not only okay to just be the total weirdo freak that you are, but it's important. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't give yourself room to be that weirdo, nobody's going to create that space for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really appreciate that about John Waters, the guy, and also about, um, about his work. And he's also, uh, the dude, he got memed, uh, a little while ago because he's a hardcore bibliophile, like dude loves books. And it's he, the, the meme was something to the effect of like, if you go home with somebody at the end of the night and they don't have any books, don't fuck them. That's John Waters. Um, mm-hmm. and I love him for that as well, because he's right. Um, so I guess Before we we sign off, I guess I want to get your final thoughts uh, as somebody who who clearly found things to appreciate about this movie, but was maybe not quite as taken with it as I am. um, uh, I guess uh, if you had to tie it all up in a bow, uh, how would you do that?
0: I mean, uh, I feel like I've kind of expressed my my overarching thoughts. I think that uh, I recommend people watch it at least. For the performances, I recommend that people uh, kind of take in, especially uh, when you were talking about this idea of having kind of a a first foray into John Waters' material. I think that this probably is, based on your descriptions, a really good place to start. So I think that it has that going for it. Um, uh, Yeah, I think all of those things. I don't know if I will come back to it. Um, but I do like the things that I remember from it, and I like that I got to re-experience them with a better context, which is wholly what the show is about. So I love that it's on brand baby. Uh,
1: oh, the the one last thing I guess I, I do wanna hit explicitly, um, and it really is sort of the cherry on top, it's sort of what ties all of the things uh, thematically together that he's satirizing. Um, obviously, Beverly is the matriarch of the most sort of leave it to beaver style family that you you could think of. I mean, that's sort of exactly what they're uh, sort of drawn in the mold of. And I love that when her whole family, this very leave it to beaver style clan, when they find out that Mom is a serial killer, not only does it not break them as people, not only does it not break up the family, but in fact, they, they pretty much all try to figure out how to cash in. Like the dad, not quite as much, but the kids are so game immediately mm-hmm. to cash in on the notoriety of their serial killer mother. And I feel like that is a fairly scathing indictment of, of Americans and the American family. And I sort of I, I feel inclined to applaud him for that. Good job, John. You yeah. did it.
0: Would you say that they were asking mother, may I? Make some money. I did it. I found a way to do it and I did it. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys, for uh, joining us on Missing Out. Um, Lex, Michael, where can people find you?
1: Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael.
0: Awesome. And you can find me at Tari J, T-E-R-I-J-A-Y. But most importantly, you could find this podcast on... Twitter, at MissingOutcast, that's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. Speaking of Twitter, we got a suggestion for our Mother May I month, and so we decided to call an audible, and we are going to be doing Cherry Falls, a movie from 2000 starring Brittany Murphy. This was a suggestion by... Lisa underscore McNap on Twitter, and I'm looking forward to checking it out. Apparently, uh, the uh, killer has a super legit reason that they're doing what they're doing. So, uh, I'm so down. Um, Also, if you guys have suggestions for uh, monthly themes for months coming up, that could be June, July, August, September. You know how months work. Uh, you can let us know, same place, same time, Missing Outcast, M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T, and we will try to make things happen. Uh, but, until then, this has been the retrospective that is introspective.
1: And now you have a new perspective. Get in the car, losers. We're going to the Camel Lip Show.
0: Ah yeah